Welcome to this special podcast series, Beyond the Shock, sponsored by Zoll Medical Corporation. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Tony Ringelstein with Zoll Medical, and joining me today is my colleague, Stacy McCauley. Hey, Stacy, thanks so much for joining today. Hi, Tony. Happy to be here. Stacy is an RN by background with 10 years of bedside experience in pediatric acute care in Indiana, and since 2014, has led our clinical marketing team here at Seoul. Also joining today is our guest, Kelly, a nurse manager from a children's hospital in the Midwest. Welcome, Kelly. We're so glad you could join us today. Happy to be here. So our discussion today will be looking into the response for hospital cardiac arrest and some of the challenges related to this response, outcomes, and training. Without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started. So Stacy, let's take a quick step back. I'd be very interested to hear your opinion on where you feel we are today in terms of response to sudden cardiac arrest within hospitals. Thanks, Tony. That's a great question. As you know, my team travel all across North America. We go into hospitals of all different sizes, from your small rural facilities to larger academic facilities. And what we've really noticed in our travels is that the AHA's emphasis for high-quality CPR, it's been heard. So right rate, right depth, and a full release off the chest with each compression. But what we've seen is that there has been some issues in rhythm recognition from clinicians. So being able to see what is the rhythm and identify that and is the rhythm shockable or not. And that leads us into delayed defibrillation. We have seen it all across the country. We know that delayed defibrillation greater than two minutes is associated with worse clinical outcomes. And the Get With the Guidelines has also emphasized this as a metric that they look at within their quality measures. Kelly, are you experiencing this in your hospital? And do you feel like it's different today than it was pre-pandemic? That's a great question. Hospitals throughout the country are experiencing some pretty intense staffing challenges. There are significant differences in the staffing pre and post pandemic, especially in the healthcare environment. Nurses coming out of school have different clinical experiences than what we're typically used to seeing. They're also looking for different things out of a job than what new members of the workforce were looking for even just a few years ago, especially in regards to long-term commitments to, to a job. To your point about the education and training, we use the RQI system, but we do not include the electrode placement or any defibrillation in our competencies. So yearly, we ask our nurses to go through scenario-based training. They read about steps to take in an emergency, but that real muscle memory and the hands-on practice is pretty limited. Going back to the topic of differences between pre- and post-pandemic, we've really seen a significant increase in turnover, especially with the abundance of work-from-home jobs that are available. The stress of healthcare workers and what they're facing in the inpatient environment is really impacting the change in the workforce. Stacey, are you finding the same in some of the hospitals that you're going into throughout the country? Yes, I feel like the conversation that you just brought up has been replicated everywhere we go. It's also been well documented, as we know, turnover is the highest that it's been in 15 years. And I also read about a survey that the AACN, so American Association of Critical Care Nurses, put out recently, and it found that 67% of RNs say that they plan to leave their current position within the next three years. So I think it's only going to get worse from here. 
Kelly, are you seeing yeah. or hearing anything like this? Actually, one of my new nurses recently came to me. Um, I had given a talk about retention rates and our goals for next year, and her insight was actually really enlightening. She said that the younger generation of nurses are looking for real life experiences. They want to go to new places, explore and travel the world, and they want to work to pay for these experiences. They aren't looking to find a job to stay in for the rest of their lives. In the past, people would look for a job where they could see themselves staying for a long time, maybe build a house, put down some roots, but things really look different now. The younger generations, they want to see the world and they seek jobs that are allowing them to do that. And that's so very interesting. I wish I would have done that when I was younger, right? Travel the world and all. So it makes perfect sense. But I do have to tell you in this environment, in the healthcare environment, it's somewhat in my opinion, a little scary. You know, how is healthcare going to work without these people or really with with less people? And obviously healthcare will survive. It's just going to present some very unique challenges for all of you going forward. So my next question is for you, Stacy. Do you feel that the utilization of travel nurses is really going to be one way to help fill that gap going forward? Absolutely, Tony. And it, it really has already been filling the gap. We know that during the pandemic, the travel nursing utilization really spiked and it remains vital. There are around 1.7 million travel nurses currently employed in the U.S. And if we look at those travel nurses, I think it's really important to think about the orientation that they get versus full-time staff. What does that process look like in your hospital? Actually, that's a great question. Lately, we've really struggled to build a good foundation of nurses and maintain that consistency of team members and retain them. Even after onboarding of staff nurses, we're finding that people tend to be always looking for the next best opportunity. And we're actually using travelers to fill a lot of those gaps. It's been hard to catch up and really build that solid base. And while the traveler onboarding is a quick a quick fix and is a great process, it's not a long-term solution. Sometimes it really feels like a cycle that we're really not going to get out of. And that's really interesting. And, and, you know, I'll be honest, through, you know, really through the pandemic is when I first started personally hearing more about travel nursing and you know, a lot of people traveling the nation to, to fill contracts at various hospitals. So I'm obviously aware what a travel nurse does, but I'm not really up to speed and really too familiar with the onboarding process for a travel nurse. So Kelly, can you fill me in and help me understand a little bit more what that onboarding process for a traveling nurse looks like? Yeah, absolutely. I actually spent a lot of my time interviewing and onboarding, and that is time away from me being able to support my team and be out on the floor helping patients. Travelers really are given just a few days of orientation once they get here, and then they're out on their own taking assignments and thrown really right into patient care. So that's really nice that it's a quick fix. But while it fills our vacancy for a short period of time, like I said before, it's just not a long-term solution for our staffing issues. You know. And Kelly, I can only imagine that when these travelers come onto your unit, they probably spend most of their time in familiarizing themselves with the equipment that they're going to use on a daily basis. So like IV pumps, patient monitoring, feeding pumps, you know, things of that nature versus taking it back to, you know, we were talking about recognizing rhythms and defibrillators. That equipment is used so infrequently, you know, I just don't imagine that they spend a lot of time orienting themselves to the crash car, especially when they know that they have additional resources that will show up during an emergency. 
this all makes perfect sense and I absolutely love this information. There are so many different variables and play and it makes complex situation even more complex when when you're dealing with all these variables with travelers and such. So Stacy, I'm just kind of thinking back to what we talked about earlier with regard to just the overall cardiac arrest response and in particular early defibrillation. So how do you feel the current staffing mix with travelers and everything like that is really impacting those key variables right now? Yeah, Tony, I think we don't always know what to expect when we walk into a hospital and really into different units across the hospitals. We have seen and heard of several misread rhythm checks and shock deliveries that are delayed to greater than three minutes. There's a debriefing software that hospitals utilize to look at these rhythms and to identify, you know, if they've been missed or if they're shocking at an appropriate time. And there's one situation that sticks out in my mind, and it was cardiac arrest that was run in an ICU at a very prominent, large educational facility. And when the nurses paused CPR to identify the rhythm, there was a lot of chatter in the room. There was a lot of conversation. They kept doing CPR then. They paused again. You know, this went on for quite some time, and they finally identified that it was a shockable rhythm. The patient was in VF, and they shocked the patient. And then during that second shock, they identified the rhythm as PEA, despite that patient actually being in VF. So they missed the second shock. It is a little concerning that we're seeing this, but what happened in this scenario is that the educator encouraged them to use their defibrillator in AED mode for the next shock. And that actually resulted in them getting the shock in very quickly. And to me, what's terrific with that example, Stacy, is that that educator came up with a solution, right? Like a way to analyze the situation and say, hey, here's maybe a, a different way we can attack this. So I appreciate that feedback. So this really leads me to the next place I think we should go to, you know, piggyback on what you said and talk about some solutions. You know, I don't think we should just sit here and talk about what's wrong, but, you know, we should also focus on how to fix it. So Kelly, I'll, I'll hand this one over to you. You know, I'm wondering with this new landscape for staffing and for training, does it change the way you look at new equipment when you're bringing it into your hospital? Certainly, Tony. I absolutely think we need to adjust as our workforce changes. I think it's most important to keep it as simple as possible. And that makes perfect sense. You know, it, simplicity is so, so very important. So, Stacy, I'm wondering, you know, what you're seeing in your travels. Yeah, so what I'm hearing from nurses, physicians, clinicians of all kinds is that they want their staff to feel comfortable in their response to cardiac arrest. So having AED or advisory mode built in will give them the confidence they need to get the code going before the rapid response or the code team arrive. If I think back to when I was a nurse on a med surge unit, I was not empowered to use the defibrillator prior to the code team arriving. I was I was terrified, quite frankly. I was scared that I was going to misread a rhythm and I was going to shock somebody that didn't require a shock. But when I think about what would happen if I were out in public, you know, say I'm at the gym or I'm at church or at a baseball game and somebody brings me an AED, what would I do? I would absolutely open up that box and put the pads on the patient. I would feel empowered to provide the best possible care. So, you know, we want to make sure that when we're in the four walls of the hospital, 
we are providing that same level of care and empowering our clinicians to do the best thing they can. Also being able to incorporate the CPR health from defibrillators. So being able to have audiovisual feedback, looking at, you know, are you providing high quality CPR? That also really helps in improving outcomes. I think all of these combine together to help us improve resuscitation programs and ultimately help improve outcomes. And what's so interesting there, Stacey and, and Kelly, too, you both kind of echo the same overall theme of simplicity, right? How to make something that's very complex and very intimidating and very scary when someone's in, in cardiac arrest, obviously, keeping it as simple as you can. So employing any tools, employing any equipment that can help you keep a very intense situation simple, as simple as you can, at least. So moving on to my next question here is, you know, since I'm with two pediatric nurses, I would definitely be remiss in not asking your thoughts on having all the tools you need when dealing with our little friends, with the pediatric patients. So I'm wondering, Kelly, do you have defibrillators in your hospitals that are used with AED mode for pediatric patients? We do. Again, just like we'd mentioned before, they're used so infrequently that I would venture to say that the comfort level of my nurses is is pretty low. Yeah. And Kelly, I would echo that. You heard me talk about how empowered or not empowered, I guess, I felt when I worked within the hospital setting to use the defibrillator prior to the code team arrival. But what I think is really interesting and what we're seeing at pediatric facilities across the country is that, you know, pediatric codes are typically respiratory driven. And the times that pediatric patients are in a shockable rhythm during cardiac arrest is very low. But what they're doing is they're using their defibrillator as a resuscitation tool instead of calling it more of a shock box. So they're putting the pads on the patient and they're using that real-time CPR feedback to help guide their resuscitation. So I think it takes a little bit of that fear factor away for those nurses and just focusing on high-quality CPR. And then hopefully down the road, we can get them even more comfortable with utilizing the AED mode. Wow, I'm really glad I asked that question. That was really good information. Thank you both very much for sharing that. So, you know, just kind of wrapping up today, what I heard throughout podcast today, it really comes down to these three, three big kind of concepts that I'm hearing. One being just overall simplicity of equipment when it comes to utilizing AED mode any type of available CPR feedback, also utilizing creative various creative staffing models, right? And then finally, a way to potentially reduce nursing burnout is through empowering these nurses through education. So just speaking for myself, you know, I've really learned so much today from both of you. So Kelly, Stacy, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Tony. Thank you, Tony. Thanks again to you both. And thanks so much to everyone listening today. Thanks for joining us. Staffing is a challenge that will be with us for some time. Structuring code response protocols with this in mind is vital for short and long-term outcomes initiatives. It's about training, device simplicity, and user confidence. When those three are aligned, everyone is better poised to respond quickly and confidently to any code situation. In our next segment, we will discuss the partnership of BLS and ACLS trained staff 
and how when we can blend the strengths of each together in code response, we are able to enhance hospital resuscitation programs.